Happy Father's Day. Uh, the scripture we are reading today is from Luke 1, verses 1 through 38. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent the Theopolis, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the days that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And, his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the, six, this is the sixth month with her who, the, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it, be according, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Happy Father's Day, everyone. It's great to be with you. Even if you're not a father, um, I'm sure you have fathers and you can be thankful for that. Um, it's an interesting passage, isn't it? When we read it, uh, there was a lot of things going on. It's a bit like a ball of tangled thread. You pull one thread, it, it kind of, yeah, this is what it was like while I was trying to... Um, understand this passage, you pull on one thread and it's linked to something completely different to what you were expecting it was going to be linked to. And you start unraveling the picture and it gets less and less complicated, but then it gets more complicated and then you're like, wow, this, this isn't a remarkable story. On the surface, it seems just like two families are getting their first son. But once you start tugging on the threads of the story, you start to realise that the promises that are given by God to his people are being fulfilled in these stories in quite a remarkable way. These stories, when you start to pull out the threads, start to become clearer. But if we don't have an Old Testament background, they can sometimes seem more complicated. So what's going on in these stories? So firstly, let me acknowledge why Luke wrote these stories. So they're not just stories which are airy fairy tales that have no substance or meaning and aren't rooted in history. These are historical. Now, we read the first four verses and Luke has gone and put together a historical account of the very beginnings of John the Baptist and Jesus, the saviour of the world. Now, he's done this for his, for his um, benefactor or a friend of his called Theophilus. We don't know much about him, but we could say that he was a Christian who had some doubts. Now, there's some of us here that might be having a bit of doubt about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Well, Luke is the most perfect and good gospel to read for that, for people who doubt and don't have a good understanding 
about Jesus. But I'm not going to focus on the first four, four verses of this chapter. I'm going to focus on the birth stories, the conception stories, because that's where the substance, that's where all the strings start to unravel and become clear. That's where Luke really wants us to begin the story of Jesus. And it's quite funny, because he actually starts at his cousin, John. Why doesn't he start with Jesus? What on earth's going on there? Well, we're going to uh, discover that as we, as we tease apart this passage together and try and pull it out of its un- into its unraveled state. So let's summarise it So before we do that. So an angel appears to both Zechariah, John's dad, and to Mary, Jesus' mum. And we learn that the angel's name is Gabriel. He appears to Zechariah in the temple while he's doing his duties as the priest, and he appears to Mary in Nazareth, assumably just because, like that's where she was living at the time, and that's what she, where she was. But the message to both of them is the same. You're going to have a son. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? The angel comes and says, you're going to have a son. But also, the message comes with a divine name, a a name that comes from God directly. So the angel says to Zechariah, you're to name him John. And the angel says to Mary, you're to name him Jesus. But also... The message to both of them contains a prophecy or a promise, which is both of these sons are going to be very special. So John is going to be like Elijah. He's going to be the herald and prophet for the coming king. And his job is going to prepare the way for the Lord. Whereas Jesus, on the other hand, is extremely special. He's going to be far greater than John. He's going to be the actual king, the Lord of Israel, the king who the whole world of, the whole of Israel has been waiting for. He's the one who will rule on David's throne forever. And that's remarkable. If you're not struck by that, just put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. They've been waiting for this king forever, and he's finally arriving. So, Let's summarise the summary. So Luke reports the history of John and Jesus like this. Firstly, there's two miracle conceptions. And secondly, there's two miracle sons. But finally, there's one expected response. So we're not going to look at all those points like as deeply as we could today. Otherwise, we'd be here forever. Um, So, yeah, there's going to be parts of this passage which I can't explain to you in the time we have. It's as I said, it's like that ball of string. You keep on pulling and more and more stuff comes out because this is such a rich passage which God has written down to confirm that Jesus is the King of Israel. So, firstly, the two miracle conceptions. So, both Zechariah and Mary do not expect to have children. It's, It's quite plain, right? So, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, uh, described by John as being very old or advanced in years, as we heard. Uh, Very old. It seems 
they've reached the time for retirement, the time to pack off to the, um, to the seaside villa and just enjoy the last few moments of their life. It, it seems kind of bad. Like, I, I'm preaching to people where you guys have been in retirement for a long time or a little while, um, or people who are not quite yet there. But to be honest, like, we can say that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are well past childbearing age. Like, how do we know that they're closer to the age of retirement than any other age? Well, Luke's pretty blunt about it. He says in verse 7, they were very old. And it's not, and it's not like um, Zechariah and Elizabeth don't know that, because Zechariah, in his response to the angel, goes, well, how can this be? I'm very old. So is my wife. Like, this is the thing that he thinks is going to prevent him from becoming a father. He's very old. They're past childbearing age. It seems a little bit rude. Like, we're a bit sensitive about age, right? Like, if someone came up to you and said, ha, you're very old, you would go, huh, wait on, I'm not that old. I've still got my, my, my marbles. I'm still functioning. I'm not quite clo- that close to death yet. Um, anyway, you'd probably want to sock him on the nose, wouldn't you? Like, how dare you call me very old? But Luke wants to make a point. He's not being rude. He's just stating a matter of fact. He's going, well, these guys are past childbearing age. It's the truth. But what is Luke doing? It's not just the truth, but he's setting the stage for the miracle to happen. It wouldn't have been a miracle if Zechariah and Elizabeth were within their childbearing age, right? Say, oh yeah, they just had a baby. Good stuff, guys, well done. You did it. You had a baby, you were blessed. But the pain for them is that they've spent the whole of their lives trying to conceive, trying to have a child, and God hasn't blessed them. Luke makes the point that it is actually very sad that this has happened, that this is not um, generally what happens. It also raises a point for them that, hey, wait, we've been good. We've been very good. Why hasn't God given us children? But also, we've got to look at the Old Testament when we're looking at this story. Who else was very old when they remarkably had a child? Who else was very old when they conceived and bore their first son? Well, if you're going, well, okay, it was Sarah and Abraham, you're right. (laughs) But I think they were very, very old. Like, so Zechariah and Elizabeth are very old. I think Abraham and Sarah are in a different category altogether because it says they were over 90 years old when they conceived and bore their first son. Now, in our current medical age, our technology has advanced to where we can have children into our 50s, 60s, and even 70s. With the advent of IVF, so in vitro fertilisation, we can have children later and later in life. And recently, in the past couple of years, 
An Indian couple were over 70 years old when they had their first son. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? But I think even with our technology, it's still a miracle for older people to have children. But then, if Zechariah and Elizabeth were very old, does that mean they couldn't have children because they were sinful? Because they had broken a law which God was paying them back for breaking? Well, I think that's the, the question that we're supposed to be asking from this passage because that's the very next step that Luke goes to. So they're very old, they must have broken a law somewhere and they must be unrighteous because child, childbirth in those days was linked to blessing from God. It still is a blessing from God, but for them, they always thought in the categories of, I must have done something wrong. So the general belief of the time is that if you couldn't have kids, it must have been because you're sinful. You must have done something bad with your life that God was displeased with. But Luke makes it clear to us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were not sinful at all. They had no blemish on them. Let's look at verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the commands and decrees of the Lord blamelessly. So Luke makes it clear that Zechariah and Elizabeth are definitely not sinful. They're righteous. They're like... If you're thinking about someone in our current age, they have no blemish. They don't, they're like, they're the pious of most pious. They go to church every weekend, they serve, they love, they cherish the gospel. They're righteous. They've lived their whole lives according to God's law, but God has not blessed them with children. And I think we meant to read this and go, wow, that's, that's, that's very sad. It's very sad that they haven't had children. But also, God's done something about it. God has decided to give them children at the opportune moment, at the time where he would bring about a son for the benefit of God's kingdom. So that time had to perfectly match what God's plan was for the son, John. John's role was to be the prophet and the herald of the coming king of Israel. And so it had to be linked with, with Jesus. Their old age and Mary's relatively young age coincided together to produce what God was looking for. God used the barrenness of Zechariah and Elizabeth, something that is extreme suffering. And if you're in that, I, I really feel your pain. It's, it's, it is suffering. And it is a miracle that God brings them out of that at the time that he does. Only God could intervene to make them conceive. So what about this coincidence? What about Mary? What was her problem? Well, she wasn't very old, so she was in the ripe, uh, in her prime to have children, right? The, the right window of opportunity. Like scientists say, okay, it's from like 17 to 20 or something like that. That's the prime of, 
uh, of life to have children. Uh, she's probably about 16 to 20 years old. We can't really nail it down, but she's definitely not old. Luke doesn't report that she's old, but instead he reports in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, that Mary is a virgin pledged to be married to a man called Joseph, a descendant of David. So what's, what's Mary's problem? What's Mary's problem? Is it, is it the fact that she can't have children because she's not the right age? No, she's a little bit different. Um, what's the problem? Well, to put it bluntly, Mary can't have children because she's never had sex. She's a virgin. Now, now some sceptics say that Jesus' birth can be explained by some salacious affair between Joseph and Mary, that they didn't tell anyone that they actually slept together, but they did, and it was before they got married, and, and Jesus was a result of that because no one ever becomes... Uh, pregnant without actually doing the deed. It's, this is so far from the truth. And, and in fact, it doesn't even fit the context of the report that Luke makes. He's gone and checked out the facts. It doesn't fit with the history. So why doesn't it fit the context? Well, firstly, Zechariah is told the birth of John would be by God's blessing. And if we compare this, that story to John, like the report of the angel to John, to the report of the angel to Mary, Luke is expecting us to put two and two together and go, hey, wait on. Like, so Mary then would have been blessed by God to have this child. Like this was, this was not like one-to-one. This is, well, sorry, this is one-to-one. We, we're taking what, Luke has said to Zechariah and applying it to Mary. Luke expects us to work out that Jesus' birth was also a result of God's blessing and nothing else. And secondly, well, let's put it bluntly, it's, it's not a miracle to sleep around, is it? It's immoral, it's wrong, and it's against the character of God. It's not how God works. And we know this because when we look at the Old Testament, when Abraham slept with Hagar, God didn't go around going, well done, Abraham. You've, you've certainly brought about the plan that I was trying to do by sleeping with your maidservant. No, God goes, uh, no, that was wrong. What you've done with Hagar was not the plan that I had intended. That was sinful and wrong. And he sent Hagar and Ishmael away from the people of God. That is what happens. Immorality does not unite the people of God. It divides and separates the people of God. And I hope you get that. I hope, I hope you're not going, okay, miracles can't happen, therefore Joseph and Mary must have slept together. It's the only way. I hope you get that. But thirdly, like if you don't, let's look at the passage again. Like plainly, it says that Mary is a virgin. So the angel doesn't say to Mary, oh, by the way, even though you committed an immoral act with Joseph, God's going to bless you with a son. What does the angel say instead? The angel says, you will conceive 
and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. Now, those two things can't be further apart, can they? Mary does not go, all right, yeah, okay, so, like, I've done something wrong and God's going to get me out of this sticky situation that I'm in. It actually says, in verse 34, her response, doesn't it? So if you have a look at verse 34, Mary's going, putting two and two together in her head going, I'm a virgin, about to be married, never had sex, and her question to the angel is, and Mary says to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? If, like, the, the two complete, like, her understanding of this situation isn't, oh, I've done something immoral, God's going to get me out of this sticky situation by blessing me even though I don't deserve to be blessed. It's actually, well, no. She knows that she's a virgin. She knows that she's never committed an immoral act and that she will conceive, but conceive outside the normal, natural parts of having children, the mechanics of having children. And so she's probably thinking like this, okay, so sex generally leads to babies, I've not had sex, I'm not going to have sex with Joseph, so then how will I have a baby? So fortunately for her and for us, the angel is gracious in, in answering the question. So this is a completely remarkable. If you just, like we gloss over this at Christmas, but it says this in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born and be called the Son of God. So when we look at this, the angel is saying, well, it's all going to be God's work. Like God's Spirit is going to come and do the work of producing life in you, even though you haven't committed the act. It's going to be all God's work. There isn't going to be hints of immorality. There's not going to be any immorality to bring Jesus into the world because he's special. He's different. He is God's son. He's the son of the Most High. And he did it perfectly without sin. Now, not only did God do it perfectly without sin, but he did it according to his will, to his own prediction that comes from Isaiah. If you remember that, we know that the one who's going to save the people of the world from their sins is going to be born of a virgin. And Mary is that virgin. She is the one that's going to bring about, bring the saviour of the world into the world through birth. So let's summarise. So we've seen that John and Jesus have been conceived by a miracle. One miracle has been bringing about a son into a family which did not expect a son and into another family that did not expect a son because of other reasons. One from old age, one from, well, yeah, the act was not committed. So, how can we see the power of God in this? We can see the power of God in this because 
it's, it's greater than just a small display of his power. He didn't use uh, people's bad decisions or their immorality to bring about these things. His power was so displayed that he intervened in the world and made these sons come to life in barren wombs. Barren wombs in different ways, all right? So, anyway, so we come to our second point. They were both miracle sons. Both John and Jesus were miracle sons, right? So we've seen that in their birth, but also in their job, the job that they have to do, the job that's given to them by Jesus. Oh, sorry, by God. So let's look at John briefly. So let's look at verse 14 and 15. So John is going to be a joy and delight, not only to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but to the whole world because he's going to be, look at verse 14 and 15, he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He's not going to be a minnow, but he's going to be like a giant whale in the sight of the Lord. He's going to be great. He's going to do a good job. He's going to bring about the preparation for the coming king. And note here, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's a strange contrast that goes on here. It's like, well, he's going to be filled with the Holy, Holy Spirit and not wine. Like, there's, he's going to be so filled with the Lord that he's not going to drink any strong wine or drink and instead he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what is his job? Well, he's going to bring back many people of Israel to their God. And literally, he's going to like turn people around. They've been going away from God, but he's going to grab them and turn them back to God. Now, how's he going to do that? Well, if you have a look there in verses 14 and 15, it says that he's going to do that by the... He will go before the Lord... In, in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the power of Elijah. Now, when we look at all those promises, it seems like John is a pretty great guy, doesn't it? It seems that he is definitely going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, there's a weird part of this, isn't it? Like, there's the power of Elijah. What on earth does that mean? Well, if you go back, so this is one of the threads that you pull on and you, you, you pull it a little bit harder and harder and harder and then you're like, oh, Elijah, where is Elijah? Oh, Elijah was in one or two kings. He, what was his job? His job was to be the prophet to the kings of Israel and his job was to bring God's word to the king. But often, he not only did that, he turned to the people of God and said, turn back to God. Like, there was a warning, there was a... Uh, he's turning people back and saying, look, God is with you, turn back. God has installed the king, the one that you really, really wanted, turn back. Then in the same way, John is doing that work to the people of Judea and the surrounding nations to bring people back to God. His job isn't just to speak to the king, but to speak to the people of God and make them repent, make them turn around and serve the true and living God. So John is no ordinary person. He's the number one miracle son. 
He's the one that would arrive into the world to announce the arrival of the coming king. And if you remember the stories of the New Testament, John is the one that's saying, I'm not the great one, there's one greater than me that's coming. I'm not worthy to even untie the straps of his sandals. Like, remember that one? He's the one that says, there's one greater than I, there's one greater than I. Look, turn to him, turn to Jesus. And this was also predicted in Isaiah. That's another thread we're pulling on today. It says this in Isaiah, there is one calling in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. He's doing it. John is that one. Like this, in the steps of Israel's history, the arrival of John and Jesus is one of the most significant events in the whole Bible. It is the event which announces that God has not forgotten his people, but instead he has put his plan in motion and it's finally coming to head. All right, so what about Jesus? We know he's a miracle son, right? He's the one that's going to die for the sins of the world. But what does the angel say about him? So look at verse 32 and 33. Let's just compare John and Jesus. Let's have a look at how different Jesus is going to be. So John's going to be great in the sight of the Lord, but look at Jesus. Look at what he's going to be. So Jesus, in verse 32 and 33, come with me now, he's going to be great, like John, but he will be called the Son of the Most High. Does John have that? title? Well, if you look back quickly, no, he doesn't. He's, he's going to be only great in the sight of the Lord. He's not going to be the son of the Most High. What else will Jesus get? The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, if we compare to John, is John going to get all that stuff? Is is John going to rule on the temple, uh, sorry, on the throne of David forever? No, he doesn't. John and Jesus are quite different. They have different roles. They're different in order of magnitude. John was just a mere man brought about through human conception, where Jesus was brought about through immaculate and miraculous conception. Both were miracles, but yet Jesus was definitely the Son of the Most High. The Holy Spirit rested on Mary and he came into the world. Now, looking at this strange part of this promise, it says that Jesus' kingdom will never end. If we look back at the history of Israel, every single king in Israel's history died and stayed dead. Their kingdom only was passed on generation to generation until the exile came and that was it. They came back and they were never the great nation again. They were never the nation that God intended. So anyway, so Jesus is the miracle son because he's the only one capable of ruling on David's throne forever. He's the one that we know died on the cross for our sins 
and rose from the dead. He is now the living and immortal God, ruling from his throne, the throne of David. He's the human being who's also God, ruling from his throne. So by coming into the world, Jesus fulfilled the promise, another thread that we're pulling on, to David in 2 Samuel 7. When God said to David that God would build him an everlasting kingdom, a house that will last forever, Jesus is that king who is reigning forever. And I think that's why Luke makes it plain to us that the throne that he's ruling on is David's throne. The angel says, this is what's going to happen. And it does happen. Jesus' arrival on earth signalled the beginning of the fulfilment of that promise to David. And that was many centuries before. That is remarkable. If you grasp the depth of God's plan for his people, this is a remarkable thing that John and Jesus together are bringing about God's eternal kingdom, both with different roles, John being the herald, Jesus being the actual king, but God is bringing about people to come, but for Jesus to come and rule on the throne of David. God provided an eternal king for the nation of Israel, and God's people, by extension, us, you and me, have Jesus as our king. And we have to remember that it was by this miraculous conception of both John and Jesus that God was bringing this about. God provided an eternal king for us by a virgin birth. That is amazing. Now, when we think about this, both John and Jesus were given divine names, weren't they? They were given names directly by God through the angel to God's people, uh, to Zechariah and Elizabeth, to Mary and Joseph. It would have taken the ease out of picking a name at birth, wouldn't it? Like, if you ever had children, you like have your, your big list and you're like, okay, so here's our short list of names. Let's um, cross them off until we get to the right one. And you have, like, vetoes, don't you? Oh, I know someone called that name. Oh, we can't have that name because they're really annoying or something like that. I've, I've taught a child who's got that name and, oh, they were a pain. Or, oh, no, my brother's sister's nephew's niece is, is that name. We can't name them that. Until you come to the final list and you're like, all right, that's it. We've got it. Their name will be Jill or Bob or something like that. Anyway, but... Jesus and John are given names directly by God. And God calls Jesus Jesus because he wanted his son literally to be called God saves. When you look at the name Jesus, that's what it means. His name encapsulates all he was going to be. It proclaims his mission. Jesus lives up to what he was going to achieve. Now, if we named our son now, like, so my son's name's Magnus, but if we'd named him Plumber, Lifesaver, Cricketer, or something along those lines, it shows like kind of the expectations we have for the child, right? We don't do that in our culture, and it would be very strange to do that. 
And those are silly examples, but we wouldn't do it. But what Jesus has happened to him, what, what has happened to him is God has given him a name which proclaims and makes it clear what on earth his job was meant to be and he's gotten that job from his very birth, his very conception. So Jesus' mission is to save his people from their sins and that's why Luke records what the angel says about John and Jesus. He wants us to understand that both Jesus and John are involved in God's salvation plan for his people. Jesus is literally the one whose name means God saves. And if we pull on another thread, just a little while, it's going to be a short one. Jesus' name is linked back to Joshua. Joshua, in the Old Testament times, what was his job? His job was to take the people of God out of the wilderness into the promised land and into the place where God dwelled with his people forever. Now, if we, we see the connections between Joshua and Jesus, we see that Joshua, the one who brings about God's salvation to the people of God, bringing them out of the wilderness into the promised land and into relationship with God, we truly get what God was on about. We truly get what he was trying to do with Jesus and what he achieved perfectly and completely when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Jesus, like Joshua, brought his people out of the wilderness, out of the, the representation of being out of re relationship with God, out of uh, in the distant land, to being close to God and being with him forever. So anyway, so I've spent a lot of time pulling on the threads of this passage and I hope you've seen them with me. This section of Luke is full of miracles, the conception of two children which results in God's salvation plan being set in motion, centred around his son Jesus. Jesus is God's lifesaver, the one that's going to bring about the salvation of God's people and has done that on the cross. But how are we to respond to all this information? How are we to respond to these remarkable births of John and Jesus? I think we to do the same as Mary did. So Zechariah is kind of like given as the negative example of, oh, I'm not going to trust what this angel has said. I'm old. God's never going to do that. To Mary, who goes, look at verse 38. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She's like, all right, okay, I don't quite understand this, but I trust that God has got this. I trust that this is happening. Um, and that's going to happen. This is what God is going to do in Mary. So it's, it's good for Mary to have that attitude. It's good for us to share that attitude too. It's good for us to read these stories and to go, you know what, I don't quite understand the mechanics of this. I don't know how God could have brought about his son 
through a conception that's immaculate, that, that didn't have the act done. But I'm willing to trust God and I'm willing to put aside what I know from science that the, it needs to be done to have a, what needs to be done to have a child. I'm going to put that aside and, and read this with, open, with an open heart and go, yeah, God, your salvation plan was put in motion because of this. Thank you for this. And I think we should hear this story and praise God. We, get, we see what he's been doing in the history of Israel in the Old Testament in places like Isaiah, and we go, well, actually God did bring that about. He did promise that his king would come through a virgin birth, and he did it in Mary. We hear this, and we should praise God. We hear this and we should be in awe. And I think it's awesome that God was so concerned with the salvation of the world that he intimately acted in the world to put a plan into motion. Our response should be trust and belief and rejoicing in the fact that Jesus and John came into this world through remarkable means and God brought it about. Now, is that something you have today? Do you trust God that this is how he brought about his salvation plan? Is that a trust that you need to develop? Is that something you need to investigate further? Well, I'd suggest you to keep on reading on in Luke. See what it really has to say about Jesus. See what Luke says Jesus is and see if he matches up to the name God saves. Wouldn't you like to do that? Wouldn't you like to know Jesus as your saviour, as the God saves man? Amen.